You're listening to Global Questions by YDS, an apolitical podcast that, as the name suggests, asks the big global questions, delving into topics that matter to you with the experts. From diplomats to academics and students, I'm your host, Emma Fabregat. Today I'm joined by Ama Berko and Nayonika Bhattacharya. When I think of true allyship, I think of just creating change and creating a revolution within. We will be delving into the history behind the Black Lives Matter movement, discussing how to be a good ally, questioning our own systematic racism here in Australia, and providing information on how to look at our own deeper biases. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the different lands on which the guests and I have gathered on, which we work and live, and recognize their continuing connection to land, water, and community. We pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. I first want to say thank you guys both so much for joining me on this podcast and talking about the current events that are going on. I think this is a very important conversation to have. And first, if you could give us a little bit information about yourselves, tell us a bit of your academic and professional backgrounds and your interests. Yeah, well, um, my name is Arma Burko. I am 20 years old and I'm just currently finishing up my last semester at UTS, studying a Bachelor of Communication, where my major is public communication, and I'm minoring in digital and social media. So after uni, I really aspire to get into the tech industry. So that's um, UX strategy, social strategy, and really working within the tech industry and building on diversity and inclusion. For me personally, I grew up not being able to see a lot of people that looked like me and represented me in that industry. So that's something that I'm very passionate about doing in the near future. Um, I think it's really important to note that I speak to my experience. Um, everything I say is, of course, to my own truth as a Ghanaian Australian. I can't speak to all my African Australian peers here. I can't speak to their direct experiences. I can't speak for every black person in the United States, every black person in the UK, every black person across the globe. I think that's a given. However, I want to utilize this platform to amplify our voices, amplify our pain. Um, hey everyone, my name is Nayanika. Really nice to meet you, Emma, and thank you for doing this, Emma. I think it's really important we have these conversations. As for my academic background, I do a double degree in arts and law with a major in politics and international relations and a minor in psychology. As someone who's grown up in a very third world and second world country context, I think it's really important we have these conversations because when you study this from an academic lens, I think there's still a lot of misconception and there's still a lot of gap in terms of how um, people are represented and what people know about different cultures and lifestyles. And I think that's something that really needs to change through representation and which is why I think conversations like this are important and I'm really interested in going into the um, feminist legal space and working on public litigation um, or women's law or anything to do with family law as well. Thank you. Thank you guys for that introduction. Before we delve into the history of the Black Lives Matter movement and how that relates to our own systematic racism here in Australia, I think it would be great to first discuss proper terminology when referring to the people in question. Um, if you'd like to start. What I would suggest is when referring to 
people of color or a person of color, it's primarily used to refer to non-white racial or ethnic groups that are a visible minority. And then when you move into the terms like African-Americans and black, people use those terms interchangeably, which are fair. However, the term African-Americans was initially used to refer to those that were descendants of the enslaved. And it can be quite limiting, the term African-Americans for the current population, just because America in itself has diversified in ways that everyone from the diaspora and other parts of the world are a part of that population. So depending on the individual, Black Americans is probably the preferred terminology to use. Okay, thanks for clarifying that, Emma. And Ayonika, what would you suggest as a proper terminology when referring to Indigenous Australians? I mean, I think that that's a very subjective call at the end of the day. Just as Amal was saying, it's it, it's a lot of these terms are used interchangeably, but then we also need to realise a lot of these terms come from a very colonialist perspective. Um, like the other day, I was being informed by a friend who is of Indigenous background that they prefer being called Aboriginal people because that's what they would like to refer to themselves as. Indigenous is a very British terminology given to them. Um, some people don't mind at all, as long as you are not using it from a place of malice. Terminology at the end of the day is fine, but I think it's always better to check with the groups that you interact with, how would they like to be referred to? Because it's really hard to make that call. And it it also comes down to the situation where a lot of groups go into the habit of, um, which is a good thing, reclaiming a lot of terms and not minding it being used against them. But again, within those groups, you also have people who are not comfortable with it, yet they've still not made made peace with the harm, like psychological harm that comes with the terminology. And that's very understandable as well. So I think as a bystander, it's always your duty to ensure that you've taken every step within, like in your handbook to make sure that you've acknowledge everyone's state of well-being and use appropriate terminology. So I think the safest terms obviously would be Indigenous Australians or for, like I find it easier to refer to them as First Nations friends because they are First Nations people, they are true Australians. I think the minute you start using terms like Indigenous and Aboriginal, they both come from a, a very British context and I think it really diminishes their connection to land, water, um, and seas. And I think just using First Nations people just really acknowledges the impact and the connections that they've had and still do. And that way it becomes easier to converse. But again, this is from an outsider. My word should not be gospel truth. Thank you both for that. Now, if we start to discuss the current protests in America against police brutality towards Black Americans, Amma, could you tell us about the history that has led and continues to support these events? Yeah, of course. I think for me, I find that a lot of people always um, question why do we need to talk about slavery? Slavery is of the past. It doesn't exist. It shouldn't correlate to the events that are currently happening right now in America. But I think it's really important to understand that the history of African-American slavery in itself has revealed the ways in which Black bodies continue to be criminalised and brutalised almost. And because of that, that's why we see the um, events of police brutality and mass incarceration and racial disparity that's so evident. So the claim that slavery is of the past is a very um, dangerous and almost ignorant statement to make because it doesn't necessarily acknowledge how slavery to this day still affects 
the liberation of African-Americans. So when we look at the history of African-American history, it literally starts from the transatlantic slave trade where um, slaves were taken from West Africa predominantly. And it was in essence a triangular route from, so you had Europe to Africa, to the Americas, and then back to Europe where European merchants, they exported goods to Africa in return for enslaved Africans and resources such as gold, ivory, cocoa, a lot of um, these resources that Africa is now so um, renowned to have. And you had over 12 million men, women and children that were forcibly removed from Africa to the Americas. And you can only imagine the brutality that they faced on the ships where um, many of them would never see land again because of the lack of sanitation, starvation. They were thrown overboard and they were taken to America, sold as slaves to work on these plantations and to be domestic slaves. So you really need to look at slavery and look at how that became or that was essentially the start of a lot of racist ideologies and they all became institutionalised where the Europeans they justified their trade for human beings. And what about the enforcement of black codes? Yeah, so black codes, they at that time, they were laws that were used to regulate um, blacks. So after the Emancipation Proclamation Act in 1863, under the black codes, states were obliged, they obliged black people to sign yearly labour contracts, which were vagrancy laws, um, and that if they were declined, Black people would be risk, they would risk being arrested, fined, forced into unpaid labor. And this basically was the premise that set the black population in America behind. They weren't able to vote. They weren't really um, a part of producing the economy at that time. So they lacked basic human rights. So Jim Crow moves into segregation. You had um, segregation laws that were deemed constitutional and although African-Americans were still allowed a seat at the table it was a separate table they were divided it was at that time where they referred to African-Americans as colored people and they would completely separate them from the white people and we see this through the public schools libraries hospitals transportation a lot of the rights that an individual should have had were completely stripped of. They weren't legally allowed to vote in their interests. And if they wanted to vote, they had to pay to vote. And at that time, a lot of them did not have the sufficient funds to vote. So that automatically put them a step back. Um, that was a very insightful background on the roots of ongoing systematic racism, which leads me to ask you about how that has translated into what we know as the Black Lives Matter movement, BLM for short. Could you take us through how it started and what it represents? In 2012, when 17-year-old Trayvon Martin died at the hands of um, George Zimmerman, which was a neighbourhood watch, and claimed that it was self-defence, we saw like a lot of protests. They began to... Um, transpire across the whole country demanding changes from Florida's stand your ground laws to gun control and the phrase itself black lives matter 
was first coined in 2013 by three African-American women, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, and Patrice Cullors, in response to George Zimmerman's um, acquittal. However, like the term itself, Black Lives Matter, didn't actually gain nationwide use until August 9th, 2014. And that was when um, Michael Brown was shot and killed by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. And he claimed, the police officer claimed that um, Michael Brown had fit the description of a suspect in a convenience store theft. So as a result of that, and as a result of his death, protesters began to swarm all around the city of Ferguson. And the overwhelming like police response to these protests kept the surveillance of the movement on the news. And it's very starkly similar to what we're seeing right now as a result of um, George Floyd's death, the current wave of protests. And although Ferguson began to simmer down or the coverage of Ferguson began to simmer down, it was essentially the combination of social media, ubiquitous um, video cameras, and just the reoccurrence of African-American deaths at the hands of police brutality that saw the movement rise. It's important to note that the movement itself, it affirms black humanity in the face of almost senseless killings of unarmed black men and women. Yeah, of course. And I think it's also important to note, it also includes issues of black women and LGBTQ plus communities, undocumented black people and black people with disabilities as well. So it's a very inclusive movement, which often gets misinterpreted. Yeah, I think um, Alicia Gartsov, the original founder of the movement, she says specifically that the movement is a call to action. So it means that it's a place and this is a time for black people like myself to just reimagine a world where we are free to exist and a world where we are free to live. And it's also, more importantly, a tool for our allies to show up differently for us. Of course, and that's what makes it such a powerful movement. This movement has recently come together this year after the brutal murder of George Floyd by white police officers. Could you talk to us about that? From what we've seen, that on May 25th, George Floyd was killed while whilst being arrested, police officer Derek Chauvin. And in that time frame, we had bystanders that were able to capture the video and it showed the white police officer pinning Floyd to the ground whilst he was handcuffed. And his knee pressed into the back of Floyd's neck for about eight minutes and 46 seconds, even after Floyd had lost consciousness. And that in itself, it very much brought to light almost grotesque nature of police brutality, which is very much backed up with clear statistics that show that black men are actually killed by police at, a, at an exceedingly higher rate than white men. These protests are so prevalent across the nation and even worldwide because black people like myself, we've gotten to a standpoint where we're tired and we want these numbers to change. We don't want to have to turn on the news every day and see another death until these changes become reformed into policies and the systems, the movement is not going to go away. Of course. And in, in it's exactly that, like you say, it's challenging 
systematic racism that's seen. I mean, I I was reading that there's a report by the city of Baltimore, by the Department of Justice, which had found that black residents of low income neighborhoods are more likely to be stopped and searched by police officers, even if white residents are statistically more likely to be carrying guns and drugs. Exactly. Like if you just look at Minnesota, it actually has some of the worst disparities between white and black people. Minnesota has a black population of about 6%, where Minneapolis, the city, has a black population of just under 20%. And in recent years, what the city has seen is that 8% of the black households were actually unemployed compared to the 3% of white households. So you really get to the core of the racial disparities and you find that these disparities are actually very much reflected in the Minneapolis Police Department. Yes. If we talk about then the backlash that we've been seeing as well, for example, the All Lives Matter and the Blue Lives Matter. So for me personally, and I think a lot of people like myself definitely agree, but when we hear the phrases All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter, it's very glaringly ignorant. From what I recall, Blue Lives Matter um, became about after five police officers in Dallas were shot in response to a national organization. Although the phrase All Lives Matter is well-intended, I get it, every single human's life matters. However, like almost deflects and it diminishes and suppresses our voices. Our voices are currently challenging the status quo. So when one says all lives matter, you almost put a blanket over the issues that we face. Of course. When I was doing the research, I didn't even know that there was a thing such as blue lives matter. And the more I looked into it, retaliation was to what they saw as a war on cops. What they say, what the research I found says was instigated within air quotations by the BLM movement and the Obama administration. But looking deep within the actual statistics during Obama's administration was when there was the least average number of police fatalities due to assault, bombing, stabbing, gunfire, and vehicle assault per year. So I thought that was very interesting as well, um, that a movement such as the Blue Lives Matter movement would start during an administration that actually had the least amount of police uh, fatalities. So I just wanted to point that out. Um, but and, and also talking about that as well, um, which is relevant to what we've been seeing in America, is I've uh, seen on the news that now police officers are hiding their, like, number bat tags and, like, hiding their identity. Yeah, I th- so I think that in itself really delves into the core of the the amount of authority and the amount of power that police officers have in America that is overlooked. People don't actually look at the statistics, but when we do, they reveal that, Minneapolis speaking, Black people are 8.7 times more likely than white people to be arrested. And this is just for low-level offences, so trespassing, playing music too loud, drinking in public, and then they're also five times more likely to be arrested for lack of um, proof of car insurance. So it really is, it's almost, I remember reading an analogy that said, if you live on a street and there's one house burning, right, would you expect the fire service to arrive and like train 
their hoses on all the houses? No, of course not. Like you would tend to that one house that's currently burning. So it's a deflection from the, the current issue at hand. Definitely. It's definitely a deflection. At the end of the day, people don't want to believe that what they're doing is wrong. And so it's easier to say, you know, everybody has issues and everybody's going through something rather than look internally and see what you're doing that's contributing to this to continue. And I think that's what what a lot of people struggle to understand. And exactly. And also when people use these terms specifically blue lives matter, it's like I said, it's ignorant, but it doesn't actually look into the relationship between the black community and law enforcement. It's been, it's, it's a relationship that it's always been, as we see through history, it's been rife with violence and brutality. Also, I wanted to add to that, but also with the power of social media, this could have been happening, and I'm sure this has been happening for years, you know, decades, but because nowadays we have so, so much readily access to, you know, amazing social media platforms that we can use to expose things that are going on in the world, you know, people are shocked, but it's like, this has been going on forever. This has been going on, like I previously said, from the transatlantic slave trade to black codes to post-reconstruction, um, Jim Crow segregation. This has been happening. It's nothing new. Well, thank you so much for talking about that. Um, and so now I wanted to talk, try and relate this as well back to Australia. You know, we've been very quick to show our support for what's going on in America. But then slowly we started to see more and more social media posts on, okay, but then what are we doing here in Australia? Because there is also systematic racism that we don't acknowledge and and continues to not be uh, acknowledged. And I think that's a very important conversation to have as well. I wanted to, you know, speak as well with Nayonika. I know that, for example, there was the killing of the unarmed prisoner. I hope I'm saying this right, but David Dungy, which was in 2015, which has been something that's been trying to be exposed. Uh, and that was at the Long Bay prison of southeastern Sydney by prison officers, which had little to no media coverage and no charges or investigations were made against the officer. Just based on what Alma said so far, I think this movement has, like, it has been a long time coming as well. Like, there have been systemic instances where that disparity is just obvious. And is it's not something that you can just individually vote out or it's not something that you can just write about and discuss. It is something that actually needed an entire system to change. And you have the same problem here in Australia. Like the other day you have the prime minister saying things like slavery never happened in Australia. And small comments and conversations like this really throw you off because a country like Australia has essentially you know, thrived off of enslaving the First Nations people, treating them differently, treating them as less or the other subaltern category. Um, and I think that's that's really led to a problem where they've never truly had an opportunity to integrate into civil society. And it's it's come to a point where their lives are taken for granted. Um, and even the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in 1991, since then, you have had numbers revealed in that Royal Commission, but then now it's been 432 deaths since 1991. And I mean, if you look at the bigger picture, I think people really downplay how large a number that is. 
um, our First Nations people make up 3% of the population, but then they still account for 80% of the male prison population. The women account for 67% of the male, uh, the female prison population. Um, and we don't understand that things like, you know, the stolen generation or um, forced removal of children from, from their families um, or forced um, checks and arrests and things like that essentially break families apart. We create a cycle of recidivism where we do not give them opportunities to have a full go at life. And if, even if you do do that, even if you do break that cycle, we do not create enough opportunities for them to understand how things can be done. And we don't provide them opportunities because essentially we've always looked at our First Nations people as the others. Um, and when it happened in 2015 in Long Bay, um, it was horrifying because it was very similar to what happened to George Floyd where um, David was unwell and he said he couldn't breathe and he was anxious, but then you had five or seven police officers charge in, um, absolutely armed, hold him down, pin him down. And those were the exact words he uttered, that he couldn't breathe. Um, and I think it's just I, – I cannot wrap my head around it as to how you could do that to someone who's unarmed, who is in isolation, who's just there, and you do this to him because he is unwell and he's not feeling himself. Um, I think this just highlights a huge issue of, at the end of the day, the police think that they have too many powers, but your duty is to protect people and sometimes even from themselves. Your duty is not to create a new code or to create new laws or to, you know, um, use brutal force against people it does not make any difference that way it just enforces these structures that come from a lot of racist ideology this is how it works um, and that's been the issue in Australia ever since that our politicians our um, local council members they refuse to acknowledge the Indigenous history that we have. Our First Nations history um, still struggles to be properly taught in schools. Uh, the whole argument of we should abolish Australia, the fact that you see people jumping onto justifying things when you have your First Nations friends tell you that it is harmful to us, that it affects us. Um, when, you know, newspaper and media outlets justify um racial practices like removing children um, or tend to forget that the stolen generation was existing up until 30 years ago. Um, I think we have a very skewed conversation in that sense because people just don't understand that this actually affects people who still are around us today um, in a very disproportionate way. Of course. And I think that like what you were saying before about even just looking at the statistics, like, the fact that First Nation women are 21 times more likely to be in prison than non-Indigenous women is such an example of systematic racism that contributes to disproportionate deaths in custody. And like you were saying, despite you know over 500 First Nations deaths in custody since 1980, there's actually never been a successful homicide prosecution in criminal courts. And like it, and that's at the end of the day because there's no exposure, not not only, not only media exposure, but also like you were saying, we don't we don't learn this at school. It's widely overlooked and it's very hush hush. You know, you it's not a topic that people like to talk about or to acknowledge. I mean, it goes down to the very fact that 
if the head of the country refuses to acknowledge its racist history, I think it makes it very hard to expect everyday Australians. But then I think that's where everyday Australians need to realise that they have to challenge the very dialogue and the conversation going around this. Yeah, and I think that's very similar to America as well with Trump. The certain words that he uses and these tweets and the things that he says in a sense validates and encourages other people to use similar language, which is so detrimental. And it's like taking 15 steps back from the position that I feel like we are today. Like with social media, you're able to educate yourself so much more deeply. You know, like you were saying, having a prime minister here or a president in the US that speaks certain ways or doesn't acknowledge certain things only like reinforce or avoid uncomfortable truth. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it really does have to be acknowledged because like black children are 13 times more likely or First Nations children likely to be taken away by DCS in Australia. And they have the highest incarceration rate and the worst suicide rates in the world. If you think about it, 3% of our population in a country that already has a small population compared to a lot of the other countries in the world, that is speaking volumes, like how ignorant and how blind you have to be to the impact of racism and like institutionalized structures that you don't acknowledge that we are the most incarcerated population in the world. A part I wanted to talk about was optical allyship. Uh, I think that's something that not a lot of people know about. And I was wondering if you guys uh, wanted to speak on it. We know like that everything that's occurring is not, it's not just exclusive to America. We know that it's not just an American issue. This also, um, it includes Australia. So I think Afri- a lot of African Australians like myself at the moment, we're quite tired because we have to go above and beyond to explain ourselves or to just recall um, points of history. So in this moment, we need people to have a lot more empathy, right? So we need, we, all, we also need people to understand how um, detrimental optical allyship is and to really get to the core of true allyship. Optical allyship, it's more, it's, it's very much surface level and we're seeing a lot of companies, a lot of brands limiting themselves to platform the ally, right? So they're really getting into performative activism, which doesn't actually account for being a true allyship beyond social media or beyond the talk. And I remember reading something by Latham Thomas. He coined, he actually coined the um, the phrase true allyship. And he said that um, it's actually about building trust, being consistent, standing up, speaking up, recognizing the struggle and actually like carrying some of that weight and throughout my life speaking per se um in australia like many others black people first nations people and people of color we've endured racism in both overt and covert scales and quite frankly it does hurt from work environments to school to public places to conversations with our friends that don't even recognize the microaggressions that they're feeding into. It's not new, but it's building up on us per se, but we're determined to create spaces for us and by us, but we need the help of um, true allies. When I think of true allyship, I think of just creating change and creating a revolution within that consists of hiring and empowering Black students and First Nations 
impacts people and supporting black owned businesses, diversifying boards and hiring like within upper management. And at the end of the day, we must proactively be an ally to people of colour at all times. And as a white person, I know that one of the most important things that I can do and I must do and is to look personally into, you know, our own lives, our own biases and even adopted stereotypes. I think that's something that's often overlooked. You know, there are so many stereotypes that we unfortunately learn through either your family or social media, you know, movies friends like the people it's like I don't I can't remember what the phrase is but it's like show me your friends and I'll tell you I'll tell you like what who you are or something like that I I I almost want to call it like invisible racism like it's like very small you know small terms or small things that people say that's a covert form of racism and that's microaggression yeah, micro, that's exactly it, microaggression. For me, that's been so eye-opening because I've always known that those things aren't correct to say, but I hear it all the time. It's like small things you say that reinforce a stereotype, which at the end of the day is racist. And microaggression is something that I think still really needs to be discussed and talked about because people that, you know, like to believe that, yes, you know, I'm not racist and I don't say these things and xyz it's like yeah but then you need to look at yourself and also the the stereotypes you've adopted and question that do you love global questions then you'd be happy to know that we run events all through the year find us on your socials search young diplomat society to keep up to date with upcoming events exactly i think like you just previously said you really look you really need to look within because people that actually engage in microaggressions they're normal people and they don't even realize what they're doing like they experience um they experience themselves as like good moral like decent individuals that are saying things that are completely fine but that's the thing microaggressions they actually occur because they're outside of the level of conscious awareness so the person that's saying that doesn't actually realize the weight of their words. And I urge every white person and every non-black person to really engage in these conversations with their black friends so that they can understand their direct experiences with racism. I think at times we sort of neglect the idea that racism actually occurs in Australia so frequently and I myself as an African Australian have experienced racism and racial microaggressions in the workplace just by going to the shops when I go to Woolies um, in education so from primary school to secondary school to tertiary education I've experienced a lot of racism and I think we have come to a point where we've realized that this is actually affecting us because we have suppressed a lot of these emotions because we thought it was fine then, but it's actually not fine. It's, um, it's horrible. It's something that we need to voice out and it's something that we are voicing out. We've realized that this has affected us in ways that we never really knew and we've connected so deeply with what's with the events in the United States of America. So I think it's really important that as non-black people and white people to really sit down with your friends and have this conversation to really understand their experiences with racism. And it, it doesn't even just remain with just racism, but it goes to a lot of privilege that occurs being a white individual. Um, 
in addition to history, a lot of history that's intentionally omitted from our history books. There's just so much. And I think that's really the beauty in talking to people um, that we don't get to see in history books. We really need to understand when we speak to voices, black voices, and we hear their stories and the things that they've enjoyed, that has even more weight, even more substance than just doing a Google search or reading a book about white fragility. Exactly. I think just going on what Emma said, when they start doing that, they start rationalizing their thought because it starts with the whole ideology that I'm not racist, but... And it's just like the minute you say the but, the minute the but and the justification comes, you have rationalized that everything that you're going to say after that is justifiable because it's coming from a good place. But is it really coming from a good place or you're just convincing yourself that you don't have to do any emotional labor or you don't have to do any psychological labor of, you know, reassessing everything that you know, maybe unlearning and relearning things because you have been taught from a racist perspective and then putting in the hard work to make sure that you actually create the, like linguistic change that needs to come with it and that is a lot of work people just prefer to take the easier way out um and that's not how it works because if, if you let it go as, as you said if even if you don't have a person of color in the group and if you don't call it out it's going to exist and those microaggressions will turn into prejudice that will then go on to, you know, workplace behavior, um, social behavior, um, linguistic and academic assumptions and things like that. Then within everything that's going on and pretty much talked on this now, you know, doing the deep internal work and looking at ourselves, can we also talk about how we can help the movement, whether in Australia or in America? Yeah, absolutely. Um, This like really stems from what Amo was saying very beautifully about optical allyship. And I think this is really highlighted in the petition that people were sharing for George Floyd's family as well. Um, Optical allyship is just so harmful because you're sharing, but where is the caring? You know, if you're sharing it, do we really take the opportunity to look deeper into what the message is trying to tell us? Or do we go beyond understanding what we have to change and radicalize to a certain extent to um, acknowledge what is harmful and in in a way uh, supporting it as an ally like you show up you have those uncomfortable conversations with your friends with your family and I, I'm sure it will be isolating but then that isolation comes with some time and people around you will come around like you need to have those conversations otherwise it just turns into a cycle of you become complacent and it does affect people who are your friends people who are like your family um, so you have to have those conversations. You donate to organizations um, that exist. You show up to protest when there are protests. You sign petitions. You, At the end of the day, we are also a democracy. You vote in people based on their policies. Um, we are lucky to have education um, in this country that is accessible um, to a certain degree. And people who have the privilege of having access to education should take the opportunity to read every policy out there and vote in people accordingly. I think this um, forced or like this forced blindness that people, um, or willful blindness that you would say in a legal terminology concept, um, that people choose to you know look at a certain policy and be like, this works for me, but everything else is something that you might not agree with and might be extremely racist and harmful 
for the progress of the nation, you can't willfully turn a blind eye towards that. You can't say that because an economic thing benefits me or because, um, you know, a certain tax break benefits me or certain XYZ policy benefits me. I'm going to not consider every other policy that I think will affect how this country grows, how my siblings will grow, how my children will grow and what they will learn about the history of the country. Because you cannot sit back and say that, oh, I didn't have an influence on the racism that has thriving in this nation. No, you did, because you chose to willfully ignore the racist policies that would come into place the minute you chose to cast a vote for a certain person or a candidate or a representative. Um, and that is something people need to understand, that you show up and vote for people who will create change, you create opportunities. And it's also one of those things where if you are in a circle and you don't belong to that group, don't speak for the group. Pass the to someone who belongs to the group and who can speak for them. We need to create actual opportunities. Now, again, this is, again, heavily challenging optical allyship. If you think you are being a good ally, don't give yourself that goal so that I'm a good ally. Let the group let you know that you're a good ally. And always, always, it doesn't matter if you've done this once. It's sort of like consent, you know. It doesn't matter if you've been doing it once. Always ask what the group wants. You show up to a protest and they tell you we don't want too many, not you know, um, non-First Nations people here. You leave. You donate money. You show up in other ways. You sign petitions. You create, you know, um, observe. You stay there as an observer if they're happy with that. Or you create a safe space online. You make your phone numbers available. Um, you leave behind first aid kits. You leave behind welfare packs. You make sure that you check in on them. After protests, you call them. If they want food, you drop food off. Um, and you do small things like that. We actually listen to what the group wants at all times. And the next thing that we need to do is in places like schools, universities, at workplaces, when our First Nations friends are making a stance, when they are making a request to change something, or when they are going out on a limb against a system that is absolutely prejudiced against them, you stand for them. You support them and you back them up. You don't talk the talk for them. You let them talk the talk, but you walk the walk with them because the support is always in numbers. Um, Non-First Nations people stand at a benefit of not being as harshly impacted by them going out on a limb. They Obviously, there will be, I'm assuming, some sort of punishment or warning, but the impact will not be the same. The setbacks will not be the same. So if they are going out on a limb, be there for them and support them, stand against racial practices within companies and institutions like that. Definitely. I think what you said was so important, especially, I mean, as myself, as a white person and for other white people, not speaking for, you know, Indigenous Australians or people of colour. And at the end of the day, as a white person, like I can only speak for what I witness within my own circumstances, which is of privilege. And I think that's super important to recognise. We can recognise the white privilege that we have and to educate ourselves and support the voices within the movement. That's the biggest role that we should have, um, you know, as white people. I consider myself like I'm a young black Ghanaian woman um, and I'm pursuing, I want to pursue a career in the tech industry. So the truth is the spaces that I enter, they're not entirely diverse or inclusive, but it's having conversations like this and opening these forums that allow us to almost pave the way for these opportunities and for younger boys and girls like myself. And I think Nayonika summed it up perfectly in terms of how 
people can help like alongside donating what you can to organizations sign petitions there are so many petitions out there from brianna taylor's petition to um robert fuller's petition to michael brown's petition so many petitions out there and essentially all you have to do is sign them and you need to be willing to like have these conversations with your friends don't ignore don't ignore what they have to say do not be complacent you really have to check yourself and understand your privilege and how your privilege has very much allowed you to get to spaces that um indigenous people and people of color and black people have been behind or unable to enter and in doing that 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 allows you to learn it allows you to grow and that's great and also you also have to read books watch movies specifically netflix like netflix has a large array of documentaries and movies that are so informative that can really get to the core of these issues and also one thing that i found is that just from talking to a lot of friends they don't actually follow a lot of um not just like organizations but voices like black voices black advocates black activists so i think it's also supplementing your other types of more active learning with sustained passive engagement so follow these accounts of black voices indigenous voices people of color who are at the forefront and actually listen to them watch them absorb them you don't actually realize it but when you consume content from people that look like you and live like you, that becomes all that you see and you don't really um, hear from the experiences of those that very much disproportionately at, an, at a disadvantage. So there's so much you can contribute to the movement and what you say and what you do in this moment will be remembered as the reflection of the value that you place on human life. That's so true. And I, you know, like I'll be the first to admit, like that was one of the first things that I really uh, had to look at myself was my social media platforms. And like you said, the people I surrounded myself around, I think that you just follow people that your friends follow, you know, and once I looked deep into that, I was like, there is changed so much, uh, you know, and the thing is during this time, so many people are providing so much information of, you know, people to listen to, uh, businesses to support. And I'm not only talking about very well-known businesses, I'm talking about even small, like supporting small businesses, giving, like you were saying, giving them a voice and having them on your platform as well to diversify pretty much your outlook and what you're learning from others. And I'll definitely add all of those links to petitions and important either movies, videos, books that people can check in the description box for the podcast. I'd quickly want to add that while I am all for people supporting small businesses and they should support black businesses, I think it also comes with the responsibility that we acknowledge that a lot of the media and a lot of the culture that we do support does come from these different small black businesses um, or differently like diverse cultural businesses that might be from different um, regions around the world because this is something that I see a lot within a younger population which is we are happy to use and we're comfortable to use mm. cultural aspects or media aspects that could be you know be music be art be conversation and dialogue be poetry for that matter 
but we don't properly credit minorities for the hard work that they put in. And I think that's something that we really need to emphasize, which is credit the group for what they've done. Um, you know, you show up to a music festival, you have an amazing outfit, make sure that it is from an authentic business and is not a commercial ripoff. Um, stealing, um, you know, money from a small business that would have profited. I think small things like that, which is acknowledgement, goes a long way. And uh, what you were just touching on now about, you know, if you're going to a music festival and you're buying a certain outfit, I think also touching on cultural appropriation. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, this, this, again, is something that is very different based on every group that um, could be culturally appropriated. I can only speak as an Indian woman. Um, I think it's really harmful. It's it's one of those things that a person of privilege um, benefits from practicing my culture, but the minute I do it, it becomes a negative point that pulls me down in the social eyes of everyone. Um, it becomes something that allows people to have um, the opportunity to make an assumption about me, to assume that um, to assume character traits about me, personality traits about me, um, assume things about my productivity, my capacity to be creative, my complacence and things like that. And I think cultural appropriation just comes from, it comes from a harmful place because at the end of the day, you are again boxing me into things when I might never be boxed into those things. Um, you take a part of my identity that, you know, essentially I as an Indian woman have had to justify through 300 years of colonialism, through Mughal invasion and other things like that. And then I have to come out of it and be like, oh, I still have to protect it. I can't be myself. And it's almost like the minute you choose to culturally um, put yourself out there, it comes with a lot of homework that I have to do because then it's like, oh, what is this? What is that? What is this? Why is it like this? Why is it like that? And the minute you explain what your practice is or the history behind it is, it's almost like a rat race that you have to justify why this is okay and why that is okay. I mean, it, it doesn't have, like every culture does things differently and you need to recognize every culture has its own way of recognition to the land around it, the nature around it, historical concepts around it, religious connotations behind it. Um, and I think that's why cultural appropriation is harmful because if you are just another average white person who can wear it and get away, you don't have to do any homework on where it comes from, where it comes from. You don't understand the significance of what it might mean to someone. Um, you just get to look pretty in it. But there is a lot of significance that is attached to a lot of the attires, a lot of the um, you know, jewelry or items that we wear. And I think it's really harmful when you don't truly understand it. I'm I'm very happy for my white friends to wear things that might be very cult culturally um, different or might be very specific. But again, I'm happy for you to wear them in the right context. I'm happy for my other Indian friends to give them to their friends, but in the right context, because it's almost like you lose position in this conversation you do not have the capacity to reclaim this conversation anymore the minute you become complacent letting people get away with this practice that's definitely been more of a conversation around cultural appropriation um, whether that goes for items of clothing or hairstyles or you know like you were saying jewelry and yes for different obviously different cultures it's uh, obviously different but I think that was a very good point that you made yeah, I think um, for me personally speaking, like it almost gets tiring having to police people into understanding like why they shouldn't use um, the N-word or like, other racial slurs because what they fail to realise is um, 
these terms are actually very harmful and you, you you can't be you can't be using these words primarily because they're being verbalized or used in music like you can't just you're not you're not in a place to determine whether or not you can be doing this that's i think nayonica summed it up perfectly like you have to be cognizant of like what you're sharing and what you're doing and you have to um have these conversations with with these people to understand the core root of the problem i think like appropriation or i call them like culture vultures um it's it's harmful because it perpetuates stereotypes and it almost shifts culture into a commodity like it, you're using historical traditions as a trend whilst originating groups continue to experience discrimination for the same thing so it's like it's almost a double standard where it's like we get to a point where that we're like that's not fair you need to understand where we're coming from because what you're what you're currently doing or what the traits that you're currently exhibiting aren't they're, they're not morally correct yeah thank you both so much for talking about that we're reaching towards the end of the podcast i just wanted to ask you guys if there's any more topics you guys want to talk about something we didn't cover that you feel like should be um discussed um for me personally it's just I think we need to stress the importance of saying um, their names. So we need to talk about um, these different incidents that don't gain um, widespread media coverage as much, like Ahmed Arbery. We have Breonna Taylor, 27-year-old, who was shot and killed in her own house by police. You have Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy that was killed within seconds by police officers. Sandra Bland, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Robert Fuller that was lynched the other day in um, California. So I think people need to realise these small um, incidents aren't just um, one-off, they're reoccurring. Also, I want every individual that um, is listening to this, if you have not heard of Breonna Taylor, I really want you to go on Google, type in Breonna Taylor and say her name. Her name is no longer trending all over social media and the police officers that murdered her in her own home are still free. So please, there are there are specific petitions out there that have been made by her attorneys, by her families. Please sign them. There is information where you can write direct emails with a template on exactly what to write to send to the Louisville mayor and to send to Attorney General Daniel Cameron who is the 51st Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. There is a plethora of information out there. Please play your part in making difference. We need these officers to be arrested and convicted. Don't be complacent. Um, Stay loud and please contribute to demanding justice. Definitely. I think even just, I think it was Friday, there was the deadly shooting uh, in Atlanta of the 27-year-old man, Rayshad Brooks, who was simply sleeping at a drive-thru. And I believe the outcome was that the uh, head police chief uh, resigned. The Stacey Abrams, who is the former minority leader of the Georgia House of Representatives, actually tweeted... The killing of Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta last night demands we severely restrict the use of deadly force and investigations must be called for, but so too should accountability. And that's the thing as well. Like at the end of the day, simply firing a police officer is not good enough. 
Exactly. It's not like we need a we need to look at the lack of police accountability and just these clear regulations and just looking at this um, specifically in Australia too, this perpetuation almost of implicit racial bias. He was not in a position, or the police officer was not in a position to shoot Rashad. And that leads to as well, I know you added some information about uh, defunding the police. So if you want to talk briefly on that as well, Amar. Yeah, so essentially, as a result of all this happening, the driving goal is to uh, defund the police. And that just doesn't mean, like, um, completely not funding the police, but it means taking those funds for police and shifting them into other public programs, such as outreach programs, social working and non-police professionals to really help these, um, to really help the black community and instead of just putting them in prison institutions, actually really helping them. Because in a lot of the cases, a lot of these individuals have mental health issues, health issues that are um, overlooked. And it's really getting into into the core of that than just subjecting them to violence. If somebody is listening and they want to learn or get in contact with you guys, um, where can they find you? Where can they contact you? They can reach me, my Instagram. I usually, I'm more often on my Instagram than I am on my Facebook. They can reach me at Armour Burko. So that's just at Armour Burko, B-E-R-K-O-H, as well as my Facebook. Yeah, um, they can reach me on Facebook. I'm barely on Instagram. But yes, my Facebook is Nayanika Padacharya. I'll spell that for you. Um, N-A-Y-O-N-I-K-A. Um, B-H-A-T-T-A-C-H-A-R-Y-A. I'm bad at responding on time, so if I don't, it's a me thing. It's not a you thing. I'm sorry about that. Well, I just wanted to say thank you guys so much for joining me uh, on this podcast and sharing your information and just having this conversation. I think hopefully everybody listening can take something from this conversation. Um, I hope it's been insightful. Yeah, I, I thank you. I appreciate it. Um, both Emma, Emma and Nayonika for just being here and allowing us to have this um, platform and talk about this issue. I think it's great for us to have these forums, especially in times like this, just so not only to inform, but to really um, talk about our own personal experiences. Absolutely. Likewise, it was really an honour to share the platform with both of you. Thank you so much for joining me guys today. I really, really appreciate your time. If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us through our social media, website or links in the description. This is Global Questions and thanks for listening.